Good morning, Christ Central. It's good to see a COVID full house, socially distanced. Excited to be with you this morning. As uh, Didi said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. And this morning, we're going to be in part two of our sermon series in the book of Daniel entitled Faith in a Strange Land. For those of you who weren't with us last week, the book of Daniel tells the story of a man named Daniel and his three friends. Uh, these are all Israelite men who are captured by the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. They're taken away from their home and brought into the king's palace. And then upon arrival, they are given this very thorough training, uh, the best training that the king has so that they might become some of the king's wisest counselors. We come now to chapter 2, and instead of reading the whole text, which would take quite some time, I'm going to summarize the first 28 or so verses, and then we'll jump in at verse 29. And our text this morning begins with a dream. Not the uh, Dr. King kind of dream, but rather this is a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar is having over and over and over again, and, and this dream is not inspiring him, but rather this dream seems to be haunting him. And so Nebuchadnezzar is desperate to figure out what this dream is all about, and so he calls his wisest men to him, which did not include Daniel and his friends at this time, and he asks these men to interpret the dream for him. And the king is clearly desperate for this interpretation. He's, he's so undone by the fact that he doesn't know what's happening that verse 1 says that his sleep was leaving him. He couldn't even sleep at night. And we all know how grumpy that one can get when they lack a good night's sleep. And in his grumpiness, the king is making some very rash and offensive and cruel decisions. Verse 5 says that if these men are not able to interpret the dream for him, he will tear them limb from limb and lay their house in ruins. He's just got to know what this dream is all about. Now the unfortunate news for the wise men of Babylon is that none of them were able to interpret the, the dream. And so the king orders that all these wise men be destroyed. All the wise men in the entire kingdom. And so this is where... Our hero Daniel enters back into the story, and as soon as he had learned of the king's de decree, knowing what it meant for him and his friends, that they too would be destroyed, he pleads with the king for some more time. And shockingly, what we see here, the text says that the king agreed, and so Daniel then goes and goes to his dear friends, and they've got to come up with a plan. Somehow they've got to get out of this mess, and verse 18 tells us that the plan is to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. In this moment of great trial, he asks his friends to pray for him. We'll come back to that in a minute. The good news for Daniel and his friends is that God answered these prayers. He reveals the dream to Daniel. And so Daniel then has the opportunity to go before the king and share what he has found. And this is where we're going to jump back into our text. And uh, if you have your bulletin... We're actually going to start at the top of the page there. We're going to skip over and start at verse 29. So if you're following along with me, either in your bulletin or in your Bibles, we're going to be in chapter 2, verse 29. 
We're going to read down through verse 45. As is our custom, I'd like to ask if you're able, if you would stand for the reading of God's word. Again, starting at the top of your page there, verse 29. This is Daniel's revelation that he shares with the king. He says, To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now Daniel interprets the dream based on what God has revealed to him. Verse 36, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king, its interpretation, verse 37, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given whatever, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth, and there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. Because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, and like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And then skipping down, verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand. And that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. This dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We believe your word is true. Father, I ask that you would help us to understand this text that is confusing, is difficult, is challenging. God, would you speak to us through your word? Would you allow me, your servant, to get out of your way so that we might encounter you, the living God. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. A couple weeks ago, I showed up at my son's first basketball practice to discover that his team was without a coach. Unfortunately, I drew the short straw that day and was appointed the head coach of this seven-year-old basketball team. The first thing I need to say is that there are not enough YouTube videos to prepare me for what I had 
quickly gotten myself into. And yet, it didn't take me long to realize that the most important task for me as the coach of these children was rather simple. I had to determine what it was that these kids were trying to accomplish. Why were they playing the game? The league that we are a part of had declared that the reason why we are to play this game is to have fun and to get better at basketball. I'm pretty sure I might have one kid on my team that is playing for those reasons, maybe one. I've also got a kid who is clearly playing because his daddy is making him play. I've got another kid who I'm convinced believes that ESPN is filming our games and he's convinced if he makes the best play, he will make the top 10 list on SportsCenter. I've got another kid who I think he is playing because he's fascinated by the architecture of the gymnasium because all he does is stare at the walls and the ceilings throughout the whole game. There are certainly some other kids who clearly have no idea why they signed up for basketball this year. And yet as a coach, I've come to realize that why the kid is playing is immeasurably important. See, because more than anything that I can say or do, it it is that motivation, that perspective, that purpose behind playing that drives the way the kid plays the game. Daniel chapter 2 is a case study on perspectives for life, on what motivates one to play the game of life. And our text reveals that there are two vastly different perspectives on life. Here we see the perspective of King Nebuchadnezzar and the perspective of Daniel. A me-centered worldview and a God-centered worldview. So let's begin by looking at King Nebuchadnezzar and examine why he is playing the game of life. Now I need to remind you that King Nebuchadnezzar, he had it going on. Wealth, power, status beyond measure. This is why as, as Pastor Daniel pointed out last week that he felt the freedom to claim the title King of the Universe. Now this may seem obvious, but one does not simply become King of the Universe overnight. Just like Nick Saban didn't become the greatest football coach of, over, of time overnight, you have to work for that. You have to plan for it, fight for it. You have to labor to that end in order to achieve that level of greatness. This was Nebuchadnezzar's goal in life, to make a name for himself, to achieve personal and lasting greatness. That's what motivated everything that he did. What we'll see soon in chapter 3 is that he was so consumed by this motivation that Nebuchadnezzar built a statue of himself and demanded that everyone bow down to it. This is the quintessential me-centered worldview. It's all about me. But what does this worldview have to do with the dream? Well, you see, the dream was a roadblock for Nebuchadnezzar, something that might get in the way of him achieving his goal. Look again now at our text at how the king responds to this roadblock. First thing we see is that he becomes anxious. He cannot even sleep at night. He's so worried about what this dream might mean for him. Not only that, he becomes angry. He orders the killing of hundreds, if not thousands, of people. And what we see here is how devastating it can be when something gets in the way of our reason for living. 
And what we learn from that, what we learn from Nebuchadnezzar is that our emotions are critical. They're so helpful in revealing that which we are living for. A trick that I learned years ago is that one of the best ways to diagnose what I'm living for, what is motivating me, is to trace my emotions back to their source, particularly the emotions of anger, anxiety, and depression. When we do that, we recognize that anger is often the result of a blocked goal, anxiety is often the result of a threatened goal, and depression is often the result of an unobtainable goal. Let me try to make this plain for you. One of my goals in life, one of the reasons why I play the game is to gain the approval of others. My worldview, my purpose, that which motivates me at times is to be liked by you. And when I embrace this worldview, I get angry when someone speaks ill of me because they're blocking my goal of approval. And I might get anxious when I hear people talking secretly or quietly off in the distance because I worry that they might be talking about me. And I can even become depressed if there's a significant amount of disapproval of me that I hear of because I might believe that the goal of being approved of is unobtainable. You see how that works. King Nebuchadnezzar's goal was personal greatness. That was his purpose in life. That's why he played the game. And the potential of losing that greatness produced in him all kinds of anxiety and anger and likely even depression. Now, although none of us are certainly as vain as King Nebuchadnezzar, I'd like to argue that we all struggle at times with embracing a me-centered worldview which is why we must constantly be vigilant in examining our hearts. We have to trace back our anger, our anxiety, our depression to their source and see what those emotions reveal about what we are truly living for, what they reveal about why we're playing the game. Now, thankfully, our text gives us two pictures, two perspectives on life, this me-centered worldview and then Daniel shows us what a God-centered worldview looks like. And so I want you to look with me now at Daniel and and the consequences of him embracing a God-centered worldview. Look again at verse 13 if you have your Bibles. So here, Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, is coming to Daniel's house and he's going to kill Daniel because the, the king has decreed that it be so. And then when he arrives, Daniel's response to Arioch is verse 15. Why is this decree of the king so urgent? He's saying, hey, Arioch, what's the big hurry? Now, I think there's a, there's a whole sermon right here, and we won't fully go there, but I do want to acknowledge that we are a people, a culture that is in a really big hurry. We are constantly rushing around, moving from thing to thing, and that to-do list is unending, and we can never get on top of it, or maybe that's just me. And that makes a lot of sense when we're living a me-centered worldview, doesn't it? Because it's up to me. The to-do list is so long because it's up to me to get it done, to achieve greatness, to succeed in life, so I go, 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 run, 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 hoping to finally achieve this goal that is often unobtainable, but not Daniel. He's not in a hurry. 
And the reason why is because he has this perspective that's rooted in something outside of himself, something that's greater than himself. He doesn't feel the pressure to hurry, hurry, hurry because someone else is in control of his life. Let's keep going. Look now at verse 17. Instead of panicking and, and maybe even just running for the hills, in response to all this tragedy, this potential problem, Daniel goes to his house, he gathers his friends, and he calls a prayer meeting. He tells his friends to seek the mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. And what the text says is that God answered that prayer and, and revealed the dream to Daniel. And, and in response to that, Daniel breaks out into song. He's so excited, he just starts singing. And this is what he sings. And listen closely to the words of his song, verse 20. He says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. It's the lyrics of this song that really show us what Daniel's view of the world is, why he plays the game. And what you need to recognize here, the most important aspect of this song, is that Daniel believes that his story is part of a much bigger story. Daniel believes that this small game that he is playing is part of a much bigger game. Don't get me wrong, Daniel is not naive as to think that King Nebuchadnezzar's power over him is not real. Daniel knows that he has a real king who really possesses the ability to bless or curse him, to make his life comfortable, or to take his life away from him. And yet, underneath that understanding of what is taking place in the moment, Daniel recognizes, verse 21, that there is a greater king that holds this earthly king in the palm of his hand. And that's why when Daniel hears the news that the king is going to kill him, he doesn't run to King Nebuchadnezzar and plead for mercy. Don't do it, king. Don't do it. Instead, he goes over Nebuchadnezzar's head. He goes to the king of kings in prayer, and then he goes to sleep. Goes to sleep. How is that possible? Should not Daniel, not Nebuchadnezzar, be the one who's having a hard time sleeping in this moment? And yet the peace that Daniel possesses makes me think of another Old Testament story found in 2 Kings chapter 6. You may be familiar with this story. It's the story of the prophet Elisha. And and the king of Syria is coming to kill Elisha. He sent his army to Elisha's house. And it's Elisha's servant that is the first to notice this army coming towards them. And he starts to panic. Elisha, we're in big trouble. It's two of us. There's hundreds, if not thousands of them. We don't stand a chance. And Elisha is just perfectly calm. No fear, no worry, no anxiety. The reason why is because Elisha has this perspective that the servant is lacking. And then Elisha prays to God and, and he asks God, God, would you open up my servant's eyes that he may see? And God opens up the eyes of the servant, and the servant sees there is this invisible army of horses and chariots of fire that's surrounding them to protect Elisha and his servant. 
See, Elisha, he sees how his little story fits in this much bigger story. It's that perspective, that worldview that gives him peace in the midst of unbelievable trials and tribulation. You see the ramifications of holding to these two different worldviews. When we live for, for self with our story, our greatness, our legacy at the forefront, our life will be consumed by anger, anxiety, and depression. But if we choose to live like Daniel does, aware that this, the story of our life is a part of a much grander story, the result is a life of far less anxiety and far more prayer. Let's look now at the dream verses 36 to 45, and, and really unpack the interpretation that Daniel presents to the king. This is one of the fullest pictures in the Old Testament of, of the meta-narrative, of God's grand story. And what we see here is that this dream is a prophetic picture of what is going to happen in the world over the next 600 years or so. And what Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar is that the gold head, that's you, king, and that's the Babylonian Empire. Scholars believe that the chest and the arms of silver represent the Persian Empire, which came after. And then the, the middle, the thighs of bronze, that's the Greeks. And then the legs and the feet of iron and clay represents the Roman Empire. So Daniel, this dream is talking about these four mighty kingdoms, four global superpowers that in their heyday exercised unfettered dominance and dominion and yet, verse 34, this is what God says about these kingdoms. He says, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of summer threshing floors, and the wind swept them away so that no trace of them could be found. Church, don't miss this. What God is saying here is that even the greatest, the most powerful kingdoms in the world will be reduced to nothing. To nothing. As one commentator says, this dream reduces the great and mighty Nebuchadnezzar to the level of spectator in God's unfolding story. Does not this truth speak profoundly to the cultural moment that we are in. And please do not hear me in any way minimizing the importance of this recent election, nor is this an attempt to downplay the importance of voting or being involved in the electoral process. However, look at verse 37. The text is crystal clear. It declares that each and every king, president, prime minister wields only the power, the might, the glory that has been given to them by the God of heaven. What that means is that the power that Donald Trump wielded in this country for four years was given to him by God and was taken away from him by God. And the power that Joe Biden possesses for the next four years has been given to him by God and can be taken away from him at any moment. 
probably even more important than that reality. This text reminds us that the United States of America, which is not even referenced in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, how dare God leave us out, not even mentioned, the U.S. of A., just like all the other great kingdoms of this world, will not remain, but will be broken into pieces and carried away by the wind. Therefore, when we have concerns about this country and its leadership, we need not despair. But rather, just like Daniel, we have the opportunity to go over the king's head. And we can beseech the king of kings for justice and mercy and goodness, not just in America, but all over the world. King Nebuchadnezzar called himself the king of the universe. But the good news for you and for me, like Daniel, we actually have access to the real king of the universe. And he delights when we come to him in prayer. One final thing I want to highlight from this dream, and that is what it is that is the catalyst for this destruction. The text says, verse 34, that it's a tiny stone that is responsible for the destruction of these mighty kingdoms. How can something so small be responsible for something so grandiose? We hear the answer hinted at by King David in Psalm 118. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And Jesus in Luke 20, he explains this further. He said, you remember that prophecy that King David said about that stone that the the builders rejected and has become the cornerstone? He says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What Jesus is saying here is so vitally important. He's saying, in case you missed it, I'm the stone. And he's saying the way to greatness is only through me. You must be broken by me so that I can make you whole again. That's the message of the gospel. We have to repent. We confess that like Nebuchadnezzar, we've lived entirely for self, this me-centered worldview. And we fall on the mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the good news is that because he was broken for us, in him we can be made whole. In him we can be made great. However, if we refuse to fall on him, as the text says, if we refuse to abandon our pursuit of our own glory, our own greatness, then we will be crushed by him. Just like all the mighty empires have been and will be. Jesus says the choice is yours. It's the message of John 11. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? What is your worldview? Why do you play the game? Is it like Nebuchadnezzar to build your own kingdom? Or, or do you see yourself as a part of a much greater story? The story of God redeeming and filling the whole earth with his glory. I want to conclude with a famous speech given in 1596 by Scottish theologian Andrew Melville. He's giving this speech to his king, King James VI. The speech is motivated because Melville was in this predicament. He had a choice either to obey his king 
and disobey God or disobey his king and obey God. And this is what he said. He said, Sir, we will always humbly reverence your majesty in public, but since we have this occasion to be with your majesty in private, we must discharge our duty or else be traitors both to Christ and to you. Therefore, sir, at diverse times I have told you so. Now again I must tell you there are two kingdoms, excuse me, there are two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. There is King James, the Lord of the commonwealth, and there is Christ Jesus, the King of the church, whose subject James the sixth is, and of whose kingdom he is not a king, nor a lord, nor a head. We will yield to you your place and give you all due obedience. But again, I say you are not the head of the church. You cannot give us that eternal life that we seek for even in this world. And you cannot deprive us of it either. The question I want you to take home with you today is, in what ways does your life reveal that you recognize there are two kings and two kingdoms in this world? And only one of those kingdoms will remain. My hope and prayer is that we'll all seek to play the game more and more for his glory and his renown. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this truth. This truth is hard to wrap our minds around, hard to digest. We recognize that we are so prone to live for self. We have such a me-centered worldview. Father, we repent. We acknowledge the ways that we have failed to look to you and your kingdom, to live for you and your kingdom. Father, would you show us what that looks like to live in this world, to live in the kingdoms of this world in a way that honors and glorifies and acknowledges you as the one true king. Pray these things in Jesus' name.